Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. We have a two-hour special tonight. We thank you for joining us. It is going to be fantastic because we have two great guests. I'll introduce them in a minute uh, as they come forward. Sandra Tanner and Doris Hansen. Sandra Tanner's name is very familiar to everybody. Doris Hansen's may be too. She was recently in a popular video. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute. Uh, listen up, two very important announcements for tonight. Because of the length of the program, there will be no Squatters Pub gathering tonight. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing related to that is we are moving Squatters uh, Pub. We're moving Pastor in the Pub. And starting next week, we are going to meet at Denny's on 5th South. 250 West and 5th South. Now, I know the audience fairly well, and I know that we're going to get emails saying, why? Why have you done it? And uh, I want to give you a few reasons. First and foremost, they can accommodate us. Um, sometimes squatters is crowded. They can't get in there. Denny's has promised us a, se a section uh, that is very convenient for us to dialogue and be in. They'll have a, a dedicated waiter or waitress there for us. So that's going to be beneficial. Second, it's less expensive. Third, the parking is ample, well lit, and right next to the restaurant. Uh, uh, it's, the seating is very conducive uh, in that room. And I want you to know it has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of food or service at Squatters. Uh, it's just a pragmatic decision, and uh, so we're going to start doing that there. So, Pastor in the Pub, we're keeping the title. Pastor in the Pub will be at Denny's on 5th South in downtown Salt Lake City starting next week. Go to the website if you need directions. In the house tonight, we've got a number of people. Kevin B, Susan H, Linda M, Kathy G, Todd R, Caroline R, Scott R, Andy K, Micah B, Celeste B, Lyric, D, DM, Tammy J, Mike, Sarah H, Alice D, Lauren B, Nick, Bemoth, age eight. We have a kid named Bemoth here. He's eight years old. How awesome is that? And his sister, Clarity. What a, a, a great audience. Grateful that they're here safe and sound. Some shout outs to RJR and JLo. We love you guys. To all the folks who come to Lord's Word on Sunday mornings at Gateway Theater or who come to the University of Utah on Sunday nights and we go through the Bible verse by verse. We love you guys. It's a joy to uh, worship with you and read the Word. To the people in the Gateway condos and apartments, we want you to show up there as well. To Stephanie and your comments, Matthew R. Great analysis. Great stuff, Matthew. Sister Glinda D. of Park City, an old neighbor of ours who is going to be baptized as a Christian. God bless you. Jim Miller, thanks for the graphics. And Alicia L., thank you for your supportive emails. Of course, thank you for everybody who emails and uh, talks to us. We appreciate it. I was a born-again Mormon, Moving Toward Christian Authenticity. It's a book that we have out. It is available at Benchmark Books, Christian Gift and Bible, Christ Evangelical in Orem, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, Oasis Books in Logan, uh, and at Utah Lighthouse Ministries, uh, which is also a great place to get many other very informative things on Mormonism. It's also available in the Salt Lake City main libraries. And uh, if you can't afford it and just want to go in and sit down, 
uh, and read it, you can do it there. You can also get it at www.bornagainmormon.com and uh, write to us if you need to from another place. Thumbing through a magazine recently uh, that caters to LDS intellectual types and LDS liberals, I came across a cartoon. Cartoons can be can humorously address reality or otherwise sticky or difficult situations. And this cartoon in this LDS, predominantly LDS red magazine, it has a young girl kneeling beside her bed in the posture of prayer. Her hands are clasped and she's looking toward the heavens. And her comment says, Heavenly Father, I hope you don't mind. Can I please talk to mom? This is referring to the LDS doctrine of a mother in heaven. And uh, it's just another working example of LDS teachings that lead from the biblical true and living God and to something else, theological fiction. It is funny, but it is unfortunate that there are people who actually think that is doctrine. Last week I was handed a very revealing compilation that I said I would share with you tonight. I was told that these quotes were given by people who claim to be Christians. Let me read them to you and then ask yourself who you think these quotes are about. One, his teachings are the foundations of our faith. Everything we have is is a lengthened shadow of him. Two, I pray we may learn from his example that we may incorporate into our lives the great principles which he so beautifully taught. And we ourselves might emulate him. Three, I honor and revere his name. I delight to hear it. I love it. I love his doctrine. I am his witness. Four, he died for those he loved. He reigns in realms above. Five, the more I learn of him, the more I love and revere him. Six, I look to him. I love him. I seek to follow him. Seven, he not only gave us joy, happiness, and opportunity here but also a great hope in the life to come. Eight, today, this Sabbath day, in many thousands of congregations, perhaps as many as 21,000, in many areas of the earth, our people have sung or will sing praises to Him. Nine, of noble seed of heavenly birth, He came to bless the sons of earth. Ten, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 11. Church members are interested in learning more about him because they love him and they love the gospel he brought forth. Next quote. How great indeed our debt to him. Great is his glory. We stand in reverence before him. Let us not forget him. Let not his memory be forgotten in celebration of Christmas. Next quote. And he shall stand in due time on earth in the flesh to fulfill that which he has appointed. Next quote. The light provided to him provided to the world by him, illuminates the confusion, clarifies the principles of the gospel, and helps lead men and women to their own eternal reward if they will but endure to the end. And the last quote, the work has been carried on, carried out. I'm not going to read this last one because it's going to reveal something. All right, so who do you think these statements are referring to? Well, let me tell you. They are from Catholic believers in what they say about the Pope. I'm kidding. Uh, I hope you don't believe that. There are actually statements made by Lutherans about Martin Luther. I'm kidding again. Muslims about Muhammad? No. 
How about statements from Mormons about Joseph Smith? Ah, ding, 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 we have a winner. Yes, indeed. That's right, amazingly enough, these quotes are about the man, Joseph Smith. Now, when LDS are confronted with statements like these, they will, might often say something like, well, you know, the members aren't very informed and they kind of don't understand Jesus and how important he is in the religion. So they might talk about Joseph in these terms. So let's take a graphic that you're going to see on your screen and let's see who said these quotes, okay? His teachings are the foundation of our faith. Everything we have is length and shadow of him. President Gordon B. Hinckley, 2005. Next quote. The one I pray that we learn from his example, incorporate into our lives the great principles which he so beautifully taught, Thomas Monson in the First Presidency today. Next quote. I honor and revere his name. I delight to hear it. I love it. I love his doctrine. I am his witness. Brigham Young. He died for those he loved. He reigns in the realms above. This comes from a hymn that was written by President John Taylor, and it was last sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in October of 2005. Next quote, the more I learn of him, the more I love and revere him. Joseph B. Worthen, Apostle, 2003, Re love and revere him. I look to him, I love him, I seek to follow him. Gordon B. Hinckley, 2003. He not only gave us joy, happiness, and opportunity here, but also a great hope in the life to come. L. Tom Perry, Church News, 1993. Today, the Sabbath day in many thousands of congregations, he talks about 21,000 congregations, Gordon B. Hinckley, singing, we, will sing, we sing the praises of him all over the world, 1994. Next quote. Of noble seed of heavenly birth, he came to bless the sons of earth. John Taylor, another hymn he wrote. Next quote. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Professor Robert Millet. Ensign Magazine, Ensign Magazine, 1994. That quote, by the way, is always associated with Jesus. Thank you, Robert. Next quote. Church members are interested in learning more about him because they love him and they love the gospel he brought forth. LDS Church Historian Glenn, Len Glenn Leonard, Church News, 1997. How Great indeed is our debt to him. Great is his glory. We stand in reverence before him. Let us not forget him. Let us not his memory be forgotten in the celebration of Christmas. Gordon B. Hinckley, 1997. Oh, I can hardly finish these things. Next. And he shall stand in due time on the earth in the flesh and fulfill that which he was appointed. The church news wrote that. And the light provided to the world by him illuminates the confusion, clarifies the principles of the gospel, and helps lead men and women to their own eternal reward if they will but endure to the end. The Church News, 1997. Two more. Uh, this is the last one. The work that has been carried out by President Young and his brethren of the Twelve has been in accordance with the plans, the designs, and spirits and instructions of Joseph Smith, George Albert Smith of the First Presidency, quoted in the Church News in 1997. Members of the LDS Church, the bottom line is this is near deification of this man. This man, this whole past few uh, months, we've been talking about what this man did relative to teenage wives. And I don't know 
if this doesn't prove that they hold him in higher esteem or almost up there with Jesus himself, I don't know what does. If you ever hear a Christian make a praiseworthy comment like this about another man, run, okay? Because you can't stand for this. All glory, all honor, all praise goes to God. Always goes to God. This should prove something to you if you're watching this show. Okay, let's go on and have a word of prayer, and then we're going to uh, bring our guests on. Dear Lord, we love you, uh, and we thank you so much for um, this time here on the air. We thank you for uh, the studio, for the operators, the volunteers. We're so grateful that our guests took time out of their lives to come here tonight. We pray that you will bless them that you will send your spirit to uh, rejuvenate their minds and memories of all they have seen and heard in their lives. We pray that you will bless our viewers and be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Before Sandra and Doris uh, Hansen join me here on the set, I want to provide some historical background information on polygamy that I was going to cover last week but ran out of time. It will be quick, and it's just to give you kind of a political summary of what the church did. In 1856, uh, the recently reformed Republican Party and its national platform called for the abolition of the twin relics of barbarism, which were slavery and polygamy. In, 1960, in 1862, the LDS church practice of polygamy was criminalized by the federal moral anti-bigamy law, which President Abraham Lincoln signed into law in 18. The Anti-Bigamy Moral Act made bigamy a federal offense and assigned a punishment of up to five years in jail and a $5,000 fine. It then went on and uh, finally in a direct attack on the LDS Church, it, the law placed an upper limit of $50,000 on real estate holdings that anyone religious or charitable organization could hold in the U.S. territory. This means that uh, this law, the funds of the church would be forfeited over to the government. Um, despite Congress's efforts, the LDS Church still exercised con considerable control over the Utah Territory. Didn't worry about it. In 1874, Brigham Young's secretary, George Reynolds, volunteered to be charged under the Morrill Act. He was. He paid a $500 fine and spent two years of a five-year jail sentence. Uh, five years later, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Reynolds' conviction. They declared that the Mora Act was constitutional, that the government had the right to enforce marital standards, and that polygamy was a barbarous practice. In 1880, I, I said 19, in 1880, LDS leader Wilford Woodruff submitted a revelation he had received from God to Church President John Taylor and the Twelve Apostles. God promised retaliation against anyone who seeks to hinder my people from obeying the patriarchal law of Abraham. Your enemies uh, shall not prevail against you. In 1882, the Federal Edmonds Act amended the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act, and uh, it became more punitive. They were no long, Mormons were no longer allowed to vote, run for public office, or serve on a jury. Wilford Woodruff recorded in his journal that scores of the leading men of the church were in in prison and the presidency in 12 and many others in exile for obeying the law of God. This was in 1887. All right. Then the government said they're going to disincorporate the church and confiscate its assets. In 1889, Wilford Woodruff, who's now the LDS prophet, received a revelation from Jesus Christ who promised that he would protect the church's practice of polygamy from attacks by the federal government. 
Okay, and then in 1890, the U.S. court ruled that the government could deny the right to vote or hold office to all Mormons who practice polygamy or who believed in the practice of polygamy. And uh, the church reached a very critical point in its history. And then in, in 1904, President Joseph F. Smith said, we're not going to stand for these marriages any longer. And we'll talk more about what happened after... Uh, the uh, manifesto came out in 1890 that said we're not going to do it as we bring our guests on. All right, we're going to take a, a minute. We're going to have a brief message, and then Sandra Tanner and Doris Hansen will join us. You thought you were ready. You thought you had everything under control. You had planned for every option. But if this were you, where would you be now? Call 888-NEED-HIM and be sure of your forever in heaven with God. Welcome back to Heart of the Matter, and we have two, our two great guests here. We have Sandra Tanner from Utah Lighthouse Ministries sitting here on my left, and we have Doris Hansen sitting here on my right. Doris is from Shield and Refuge, and she'll talk to you about that in a second. Listen, you've heard of general authorities before. Well, I have a specific authority here. And it's Sandra Tanner, and you've heard me talk about utlm.org. Let me tell you something before Sandra talks. The, the website is phenomenal because you can trust what they tell you, and it gives you, the, it gives you everything you might need. Just go through and read the emails alone. Read the, read the research. Read the books. It offers everything. I am so, I'm just so glad to have you on, Sandra. Sandra, tell the audience a little bit about yourself like they don't already know. Uh, well, I'm from a uh, fifth generation Mormon family and uh, direct descendant of Brigham Young. Um, when I was a teenager, I had questions about Mormonism. When my husband and I got married, we uh, were seriously looking into truth claims of Mormonism and felt there were too many problems. And uh, then we started writing and researching and, and compiling our stuff so that our families would know why we didn't believe anymore. And uh, it led to a whole lifetime of, of writing and researching on Mormonism. Uh, through it all, we came to see that uh, following Christ was very different than following the Mormon church. And we felt we had to set that aside and go to just following uh, just what was in the Bible as opposed to Joseph Smith. All right. A great summary. I, I got to tell you, I, I know I'm really, but I just am very appreciative for the people who came before me. I've been here a year and a half, you know, whoop-de-doo. These people have been in the trenches for 40, 50 years, and, all, and, and Sandra and Gerald, they've just gone through it. And so I'm so appreciative of the work they've done and the, and the path they've laid for us to continue to see the truth. Okay, and now we have Doris Hansen, who also has experienced things unbelievable. And she has a ministry that we really want to support. And so Doris, will you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yes, I was born and raised in the Kingston polygamy group. Um, my mother was a second wife, and there were 16 people in the family, which is really small compared to most polygamous families. Um, I hated the life. It is not a glamorous, loving, emotionally uh, productive life at all. I determined to leave when I turned 18, and I did. I ran, I had to run away in the middle of the night, and I got away. 
And for several years, I was dogged with the idea that perhaps I had left my only chance of salvation, but I was really afraid to find out what the truth was. And, and uh, I like to say that I was running away from God um, all those years, and, and God just worked around to where I ran right into Him. And He showed me that He was not the God of polygamy, that He was a loving God who loved me and died on the cross for my sins. And so I invited him into my life, and I had had a have had a heart's burden for polygamy people ever since I became a Christian. And my heart's desire is to help people leave polygamy groups safely, as I did not leave safely, and to teach them and and let them know right from the beginning that God loves them, He doesn't hate them, and salvation is not by polygamy; it's by uh, faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Praise God! Praise God! Awesome. We're going to hear more about uh, from both uh, Doris and Sander as the show goes on. We're going to take calls, but there's a few things I'm going to bring up and ask uh, them to respond to. The first thing is our show has touched on polygamy for the past three or four weeks, and we've talked about it before, but um, we've talked about Joseph Smith's wives and the lives that they lived after uh, he got, got them to marry him. And my question is, from all of your knowledge, experience, study, research, why do you think Joseph initiated the practice, and why do you think Brigham Young continued, um, continued it? Sandra. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, somewhat complicated. Joseph Smith was working on a revision of the Bible um, in 1831, and I think when he got to the part about uh, Abraham being a polygamist, that he, since he was claiming to restore the only true church, and uh, you've got to restore everything in the Bible. I think he decided, well, you have to restore polygamy, too. Um, I, I assume he also was looking at girls that helped him <laughs> Make that feel that was a really good idea to, to uh, restore uh, the patriarchal order in uh, the Old Testament. When polygamy first uh, was introduced into Mormonism, though, it was um, originally, the first revelation was to go to the Indian women and convert them as a means of raising up seed to make them white and delightsome in fulfilling the Book of Mormon promise. And then it evolved into going to the regular women in the church. Um, he got in trouble in the mid-1830s with Fanny Alger, and I think you talked about her earlier. Uh, and then he married women, uh, married women and teenage girls and uh, then he evolved in this doctrine that said, in order to be a god and uh, rule your worlds, the more women you had, the more families you had, the greater god you were. So this theology expands into this idea of, well, if I marry a bunch of women, I can have more worlds and be a bit more important god. And uh, so this was a one of the appeals to, well, one of the appeals <laughs> of, of polygamy to his follow, male followers was uh, not only to get the women, but you get to have all these worlds and all this power. So as far as Brigham Young carrying it on, Brigham said that uh, it was a very hard thing for him to enter into. But obviously, once he got the hang of it, he uh, <laughs> was really converted because um, he had over 50 wives. Uh, and so, I mean, this was uh, quite an endeavor. Uh, so, uh, 56 children, you know, I don't even know how they remember their names, but, which isn't that uncommon for polygamists today. I mean, a lot of them have that kind of number of children. Um, so they claimed it was a theological position. 
Um, but it's real hard, you know, to, to think there wasn't a little sexual uh, promiscuity along the way of, of the desire, following the desires of the heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, great st and the great stuff, um, the thing about uh, Sandra's comments are you can find substantiation for everything she says on their website. Do the research. We've always been about you guys finding out for yourselves. Just look it up, utlm.org, Utah Lighthouse Ministry. Okay, Doris, what comments? Well, what, what little I can add to what Sandra said, um, in No Man Knows My History, uh, the remark was made that Joseph Smith said whenever he looked at a beautiful woman, he needed an extra measure of grace uh, because he liked the beautiful women. And um, I think Brigham Young also liked the beautiful women. In fact, he came to Salt Lake so that he, he and his followers could live polygamy unhindered. Oh. Very good. You know, as I look at our screen, if we do the three shot right now, and we're talking about polygamy, we just look pretty darn good on camera. You know that? There we are. They didn't call me on the pink thing. I'm feeling a little left out, but otherwise we're doing okay. All right, next question. Uh, L Richard Bushman, LDS author, professor emeritus at Columbia University, very well respected for his ability to write and communicate, and he wrote Rough Stone Rolling, uh, said in the following interview on Pew, this is a quote, in talking about polygamy, in actual fact, polygamy seemed to have served a function in society. We now have a fine-grained study of polygamy in one community where we know every family in the community and everything about them. And what polygamy seems to have been was a way in which young women without male protection, no father, no older brother, no near relative to care for them, were absorbed into Mormon society. Thoughts, Doris? Well, I guess I would like to know, since when do you marry the object of your choice of charity? Uh, you can support and help someone without marrying them. And I think that's just an excuse that, that was used. Um, there was not that many instances where it was uh, just absorbing them into the society. The, the idea was to marry as many women as you could, and the more women you married, the higher celestial glory that you would get. Uh, and it was not a matter of just taking care of them economically or feeling sorry for the orphans or the widows. All right, Sandra. Well, uh, Mormons often have the understanding that there was an excess of women in Utah. There never was an excess of women. It just stands to reason, if you think about it, in a pioneer community, you're going to have more men than women. First off, a lot of women were smart enough not to come across the plains. Uh, and uh, the ones that did, a lot of them died in childbirth. Uh, in a pioneer community, you always have more men. Uh, so if they were bringing in young girls from Europe, for, for instance, they would have found husbands. There, were, there was never this great number of women that they had to take multiple partners to take care of them. These girls could have found husbands because there were enough men to go around. And th that certainly isn't an excuse that would do any good for Joseph Smith. What excuse are you going to have there? They, these weren't uh, situations where the girls had to marry him in order to have a husband. Yeah, many of them had husbands. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and fathers and brothers and the whole thing. So Bushman, you know, I have a lot of respect for your ability to write. But, I mean, what you said there was just absolutely ridiculous. 
And I can't believe that, that somebody of your ability to write and to be a scholar could actually say something like that. I mean, I don't know if you'll ever see this, but that's really unfortunate. You know, we rely on you for truth, and then you kind of kowtow and cater to the church so it doesn't look so bad. You know that's just not true. So let's talk about truth now for a second. From my observations, the LDS leaders have been very evasive and misleading on present-day church's position on plural marriage today. Let me give you some quote from Gordon B. Hinckley's interview with Larry King and hear your thoughts, all right? Talking about polygamy, he made three statements. Quote, the church has nothing to do with it. Second, it has, it has had nothing to do with it for a very long time. And third, it is behind us. Is polygamy behind the LDS church today? Sandra. Well, first off, you have to understand that section 132 is still in the Doctrine and Covenants that teaches polygamy. It is not behind them. It is still a doctrine. It's still published in their scriptures. This, uh, in the last two years, I don't remember the exact date, but Apostle Nelson, I believe was his name, uh, was widowed and he married a BYU professor, a woman who had never been married before and was sealed to her in the temple. So by Mormon standards, he has entered into polygamy. Now granted, he's not going to live with both women until the hereafter, but they, they can't say that polygamy is behind them if they're going to still be sealing people in polygamy. If any widower wants to take another woman to the temple after his first wife's died, he can do that. He can have more than one sealing on the book. So polygamy isn't behind him. It's, it's just um, a kinder, gentler version. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Doris. <laughs> no, polygamy is not behind him. Uh, I hear uh, rumblings quite frequently of uh, Mormon missionaries and other Mormon people that say that soon polygamy will be restored again to the uh, LDS church. Uh, some men are looking forward to it, some aren't, most wives aren't, uh, but they do continue to seal in the temple as Sandra said and it is not behind them. They're looking forward to it in heaven and some of them are looking forward to it here. Yeah, And you know, like we've said on the show before, ladies, or brothers and sisters of the LDS Church, if, you, if this has always bothered you, why don't you just take Doctrine and Covenants into your stake president, open up to 132 and say, why is this still here? Are we going to practice that? And keep pushing it, keep pushing it. Now, I don't know if it's gonna do anything, but at least it's something that you can say, this is just not right. Let, let's, let's focus on that. Okay, talk to me about your thoughts on lying for the Lord. And before you do that, I want to give a quick example of that to our audience. Um, as a mission president in England, um, this was recorded in Orson Pratt's wor work and a uh, photocopy in Sharon Bannister's Handbook for Any Latter-day Saint, page 288 to 298. President John Taylor says in 1850, listen, this is a quote, we are accused here of polygamy and actions the most delicate, obscene, and disgusting, such that none but a corrupt and depraved heart could have contrived. These things are too outrageous to admit of belief. Therefore, I shall contend myself by reading our views of chastity and marriage from a work published by us, containing some of the articles of faith in our Doctrine and Covenants, page 330, Inasmuch as the Church of Jesus Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband, except in the case of death, 
where either is at liberty to marry again, end quote. When he said this, he was, in fact, according to Michael Quinn's The Mormon Hierarchy, Volume 1, Origins of Power, page 597, married to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 women back in the United States and had among them at least, uh, looks like about 24 children. So this I would call lying for the Lord. Ladies, Doris, do you have any thoughts on the idea of lying for the Lord? Well, I would go back to the first, uh, the first thing I'd go back to is the Ten Commandments where God said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. And we have a guy who doesn't change and admitted by the Mormons, they also have a God who they say doesn't change. So it isn't right to lie for any reason. Uh, God would not expect and wouldn't ask his people to lie for him. He can certainly take care of himself. Um, as growing up in the polygamy group, we were taught to lie. We were taught how to lie. We were taught what to say. We were taught uh, what we could reveal and couldn't reveal. We were threatened with hell and damnation if we didn't lie. Um, I remember one particular time I had stolen a package of gum and lied and said I didn't steal it and got beat up for lying and yet we're taught how to lie. So you kind of wonder uh, where their double standard is and why. Um, one of the um, leaders of the group in the, in the Kingston group said that if the Kingston group, if their group doesn't survive, Jesus' work on this earth will fail. We need to do everything we can, including lie for it, in order to make sure that it isn't lost. Amazing, amazing. Sandra. Well, polygamy was introduced by lying. Uh, it was never openly proclaimed during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Every statement that Joseph Smith gave about polygamy was a lie. He was lying about it a month before he died. He gave a sermon where he said, what a thing it is to be accused of having seven wives when I can only find one. And there were at least 33 women sitting in the audience, we assume, that were his plural wives. But in their Doctrine and Covenants, well, you mentioned that in that article, they had a section in the Doctrine and Covenants that, uh, uh, with their section on marriage that you read, that inasmuch as we believe in the crime, have uh, been accused of fornication and polygamy, we declare one man should have one wife. And this, this section was in every edition of the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. And I have photos here of the different editions, the 1844 Doctrine and Covenants, the 1852 Doctrine and Covenants, the 1866 Doctrine and Covenants, all had this section on denouncing polygamy in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so when John Taylor, as you read, is over in France and he's asked about polygamy, he lies about it. And he, to back it up, he has this section in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's like, see, it says right here, we don't believe in polygamy. Uh, and for years, this was appealed to by the church leaders when they were trying to hide polygamy. Uh, when they had the revelation, supposedly, in 1890 to give up polygamy, now they lie on the other side. Now they're lying that they gave it up, but they keep practicing it. And the church leaders keep taking plural wives after the manifesto. We know that for the next 14 years after the manifesto, top church leaders continue to take plural wives. And this is documented in the book called Solemn Covenant by um, Carmen Hardy, I think the professor's name was. Uh, and he lists out, I think it's a hundred examples of 
top church leaders taking plural wives after the manifesto. And one of them on the list is my great-grandpa Brigham Young Jr., son of Brigham Young. He continued to take a plural wife after the manifesto. It was a common thing among the top leaders. So the lying has been a continual factor on polygamy and Mormonism. Oh, I'm so glad that you ladies are here. This is just great. You don't you look at my mug every week. Don't believe me. <laughs> Listen, these are two very nice people. They don't wear black. They're very nice, well, except your pants. Uh, but you know what? I mean, what do you need, Latter-day Saints? What do you need? How much do you need? Are you going to continue to believe in this stuff, or are you going to do a little searching? Because one thing about our guests is they're Christians. They left Mormonism and came to know the Lord. And that is the, that's, the, that's the important thing. If you leave Mormonism and you don't come to know the Lord, well, you know, whatever. There's no purpose in this show, but you've got to know the Lord. And you're really not going to come to know Him until you can see this stuff clearly. So just listen to what's being said. I really appreciate it. Okay, back to the Larry King show. Larry King made a point-blank statement relative to polygamy. It wasn't a question. He said this to Gordon B. Hinckley. He said, you condemn it. And Gordon B. Hinckley replied, I condemn it, yes, as a practice, because I think it is not doctrinal. It is not legal. And as this church takes the position that we will abide by the law. Ladies, is the practice doctrinal? Sandra. <laughs> well, of course it's doctrinal. It's still in the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, hello, the name of the book is Doctrine and Covenants. And it has the section 132 teaching polygamy. So obviously it's doctrine, still is doctrine. Uh, and they continue to seal people in polygamy, even though it's going not it's supposedly not going to be lived until the hereafter. But it's still a doctrine that they're promoting. Uh, and as far as his mentioning the legality issue, uh, that they keep the law of the land, it was illegal when Joseph Smith practiced it. It was illegal when they practiced it here in the Utah Territory. It's always been illegal. It didn't stop them before. So I don't know what their thing is about, oh, well, we don't do it because it's illegal. It was always illegal. That's more lying for the Lord, my friends. And they continue to do it. Even the kindly man that you see stand there so humbly and giving his messages, he, I'm sorry, this is no respect. He's lying to you. That is a lie, and it's wrong. I've lied in my life, and it's a sin. He's lying now as the leader of the church. Definitely wrong. Doris, comments on that. Yes, of course, uh, it is doctrinal. It's in the, the Doctrine and Covenants in Section 132. Uh, in Section 132, it is called an everlasting covenant, and the word everlasting means forever, lasting forever from that point on. So it is doctrinal. Uh, it says in the Section 132 that you're damned if you don't live it. Um, so what are all of, if, since it's still in the Doctrine and Covenants, what are all of the Mormons going to do now who aren't living it, currently living it, spiritually or otherwise? Uh, in order to become a god, you must live polygamy. Uh, all through the Journal of Discourses, uh, it talks about polygamy and how important it is. In fact, there were some remarks in the Journal of Discourses, and I don't have the reference points. Uh, and Orson Pratt also made the remark that the one-wife system was condemned. They did not believe in the one-wife system. It was the source of all kinds of crimes and, and problems with society. If the society lived polygamy, a lot of the problems of society would be taken care of. Uh, the leaders of the church taught it, and they said they were speaking from God. 
so it's doctrinal. And so Doris, because of your having been raised in the Kingston polygamous group and left it uh, as a young or 18-year-old escaped from it at night, like you shared and will share hopefully, um, their whole purpose in practicing it was so that they could follow the doctrine and become a god? Right. They, they want to follow the doctrines of Joseph Smith as Mormonism uh, originally taught. In fact, uh, the, the fundamentalists, the polygamists are living true Mormonism. They all think they're going to become a god, and the more wives they have, the higher celestial glory they're going to enjoy when they get into heaven. Okay. I maintain that the spirit of Joseph Smith is embodied in the LDS church today. It's something that I think that we can still see is here. His spirit that he brought to this church and his teachings continue to live. The leaders say they revere him, they learn from him, are grateful to him for all he has done for bringing the gospel to us and making it available to us. This is a difficult question. It's a little bit strange. Uh, but if Joseph Smith were alive today, what do you suppose would be different in the church now? Doris, i give you the hard one first. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joseph Smith uh, hid his polygamy practices, so... Um, Maybe the polygamy groups would, would be hiding it more than they are now. Um, the church probably would not allow him in the church if he was alive now because he supposedly is not living the Mormon doctrine as contemporarily taught. Um, the changing uh, doctrines of Mormonism is just constantly going on. It did then and it is even more so now. And Jesus couldn't get into BYU either, so right. uh, as long as we're on that topic. Sandra, any thoughts on this weird question? Well, for one thing, Joseph Smith changed his religion every few years, so I don't know what we would have had by now if he was still alive. Uh, <laughs> someone once joked that uh, in Mormonism, today's truth is tomorrow's heresy. Wow. And um, so how would he have evolved it? I don't know. It, if you look at the start of Mormonism in 1830 and you go to 1844 when he died, he reversed himself on almost every major doctrine. So what would he have done in the next 15 years? You know, who knows what all he would have changed or reversed. Uh, but I think it's also important to keep in mind in thinking about what would the church look like today under Joseph Smith, that it, it wasn't just the doctrine of polygamy that he was in trouble with when he died. Polygamy was part of a bigger picture. It was part of this political kingdom of God. He was setting up for the millennial reign of Christ. And this was the way the government would work. He would be the president, king, under Jesus. The church leaders would run the government. They would have polygamy, but they would also have a theocracy. The polygamy and the political kingdom of God were all part and parcel of the same thing. So it's not like you have this one doctrine here, this doctrine over here. They all were part of a package. And when uh, the uh, people came out opposed to polygamy in Nauvoo and published the little newspaper, the Nauvoo Expositor, which he destroyed, which got him in jail, which ended up getting him killed. Uh, but the newspaper that was not just exposing his polygamy, the Nauvoo Expositor was also exposing his political agenda of setting up this kingdom where he would rule and it would include polygamy. So it's a, uh, there's more to it than just the idea of having more than one wife. Will you travel with me wherever I go? Yeah. <laughs> As your other wife. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, no. they have senses of humor, too. 
This is a great time, let me tell you. You know what? Since you brought up the theocracy idea, let me, I'm kind of going out of order here like we talked about, but what do you think about the Mitt Romney thing? I was uh, interviewed for a documentary a while ago and they were really big. Mitt Romney, how come people would, they'll trust a Catholic, they'll trust a woman, they'll trust a black man in office, but a Mormon, they're just not going to trust. What do you think about the idea of theocracy being in the foundation of the establishment of the church and how it plays out to Mitt Romney running for the presidency today? Uh, well, Mormonism has always had this underlying objective of becoming the political kingdom of God. And that was part of the problem when they were out here in Utah, when the president of the United States sent the army out here to quell the Utah rebellion, because the Mormons had a theocracy. And although there were these higher level federal agents out here, the Mormons didn't obey them unless they wanted to. I mean, it was you know, kind of like pick and choose. Well, okay, I'll do that one. No, not this one. And uh, the government said, you know, like we kind of thought you ought to obey all, all <laughs> you know, not just few. And um, so there is this theocracy underpinning the whole movement. And I believe that is still the goal and idea in the Mormon heart. Now, I don't know that that's in Mitt Romney's heart. I don't know that he's planning on being uh, king over the United States. Uh, but the problem is that he goes through the temple regularly. In the temple, he swears allegiance to the Mormon church. He takes a specific oath to obey the Mormon church, not just obey God. The oath specifically says that he consecrates everything he has to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I find that troubling. I don't know what that would mean when he's in office, but I find it a troubling thing because he won't discuss it. He won't tell us what that means to him. How far would he go in the obedience to that oath in following the brethren? Uh, I have a, <laughs> since you asked, <laughs> I happen to have here um, a thing from the internet where Romney was uh, uh, interviewed, and uh, this is uh, out of the Deseret News from May 14th of 2007. And in this interview, it says that Romney mentioned his great grandfather, who was a polygamist. Quote, they were trying to build a generation out there in the desert, and so he took additional wives as he was told to do, Romney said. And I must admit, this is Romney, I must admit. I can't imagine anything more awful than polygamy, end of quote. Now, we get back to this truth thing. Is Mitt Romney telling us the truth? Is this another one of those lying for the Lord moments? Is he trying to put a spin on his uh, family's past? Uh, I don't believe this accurately reflects his true view of his family. Mormons revere their families. And his family was not just in the desert. They were in colonial war as Mexico, where they had gone to practice polygamy because they didn't dare live it in the United States. So that's why they're down in Mexico. Uh, he took polygamy, he took plural wives because he was told to. Well, okay, that's an uh, interesting thought. What else would he do if he was told to do it? This is the mindset of Mormonism. You follow the leaders. You do what they tell you to do. If they say move out of the country and live polygamy, you do it. Uh, and for him to say, I can't think of anything more awful than polygamy, 
if that is actually his feeling, then he, I would see him, I would see that as a, a disgraceful statement dishonoring his own family, his own great-grandmother, because these people lived it out of a true feeling of obedience to God. Now, I don't believe polygamy, but I believe those poor women that went into this really thought they were following God. And uh, I think it must have been awful, too, and I wouldn't want to live it. But I think he is not being honest with this because I think in private he would tell you he reveres those relatives that went down to Mexico to live that. Some excellent, excellent points. Doris, anything to add? <laughs> <laughs> Can't add much to what Sandra says. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Uh, well, my concern, of course, would be the allegiance that he has sworn to the Mormon Church above and beyond all else. Um, uh, and he, and he, he has sworn that allegiance in the temple. Um, another concern I have is the, there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes to legalize polygamy um, from different areas. And the ACLU supposedly has decided to take that on as a case. So it's going to be coming up in the courts in due time. We don't know how long that time is going to be. But if it came up in the courts or came up as a proposition while Mitt Romney was president saying that he was president, what would he do? How would he support it or not support it? Being a church doctrine, could he be against it? Uh, and if he couldn't be against it, then would he support it to the fact that polygamy would actually become legalized? Um, I have seen some of his interviews and he has been asked some questions regarding his faith and I have seen him sidestep, not tell the answers uh, correctly, not even tell the truth. But he would um, just answer the question according to how he should answer it if he was a Christian. And we all know that that isn't the case. So, that makes probably me plays, nervous. Yeah, <laughs> that probably plays right into why so many people don't trust uh, someone who's LDS and running for president. Uh, last uh, two questions. I. I am terrible, I have to admit, I'm probably going to get flack for this, when it comes to um, social morality, social issues, I frankly do not have any opinion on government involvement in things. And so when it comes to polygamy, I just, I just don't have any uh, um, personal stance on if it should be outlawed or not. I, I just think I'm going to preach Jesus and let the governments work this out because I think it's a lost cause in the end anyway. And I think if a consenting adults are going to practice polygamy, well, I say let them practice it. What angers me in our ministry is that the LDS church lies. And I think they should come forward and say we believe in it. We always have believed in it. It's, an, it's a doctrine and we're going to practice it in the hereafter. And we just don't practice it now because of its legality or whatever reason. It's not popular. I know I'm going to get backhanded by these ladies for having said that, but... Aside from wholesale collapse of the church, what would you hope for relative to the LDS church today? If you could have a wish granted, what would it be, Doris? I think I would wish that they would quit playing the chameleon and just come out with what they truly believe and quit trying to make excuses for why there's something that there really aren't. Just be honest. Just be who they are. Awesome. Sandra? Well, I think it's interesting when I'm talking with a Mormon and I'll bring up things out of different books or old statements of their church leaders. And so many times they'll say to me, well, that's not doctrine. And then I ask them, okay, where do I get the doctrine from? And, uh, you know, well, it's certainly not anything I would use. That, I mean, right off the bat, we know that. So if I'm using it, it isn't doctrine. Uh, but 
so what, what I would like to see the Mormon church do is frankly come out with a book on doctrine. Why aren't they right up front with what they believe? Uh, Brigham Young was pretty straightforward on it. When he got up and preached, he at least told you what he believed. It might have been crazy, but he told you what he believed, you know. So, but the guys today, they, they don't give you straightforward answers to stuff. Why isn't there a doctrinal book? Why doesn't the church leader come out and officially give a position on something? They never say anything meaningful. They always say these little cliches and little sites. You listen to conference, you could rerun conference. I mean, they, they, they could all die tomorrow and they could play last year's conference and no one would know the difference because they don't say anything different. You know, where's the doctrine? Understand we are laughing with you. We are not laughing at you, seriously, because it's true. Uh, just amazing. And what we have kind of a theme going on here, if you've seen that, and it wasn't planned. We didn't sit down and plan this. All I did was tell them the questions I was going to ask. But the theme is we have this line for the Lord. We have chameleons. We have this deception theme. And you know what, frankly, if you're watching the show, it's it's just categorically true. And you have you cannot know truth unless you get it and you're not getting the truth. So please listen to us, do your research, go check out the, the sites we've talked about that are coming up on your screen and get involved in your faith so that you know what you believe and pretty soon you're gonna have to make a decision. Is it Jesus or is it Joseph? You're gonna have to make that decision. I pray it will be Jesus and that you will then establish a relationship with him and not be tied to a religion. We're going to go to the phones. Um, we're going to open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Please, if you have a question, uh, please have a question and direct it to the person you want to ask. Uh, say, uh, Sandra, Sean, the group, uh, Doris whoever, but just, and then be quick, okay? And because we're going to have a lot of people who want to call. We're going to Paul from West Valley. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, Sean, how you doing? Ooh, doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, uh, boy, those two ladies you have on kind of took away my thunder, you know? <laughs> they Mine too. They wanted to cover. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, and I'm going to ask them, you know, I was a long-time Mormon, and I got saved years ago. But anyway, one thing I never understood was the ceiling of people to one another in the temple. You know, um, you know the Mormon, the whole thing of family values and stuff, they take that one step higher and they take it up into heaven. As a Christian, you know, we believe that, you know, we get our heavenly bodies, and then we're just heavenly beings. And uh, with all these ceilings taking place, uh, I would just like one of your guests or you to kind of explain the Mormon ceiling process to me. Like if I had a, if I was sealed to my wife and had my kids sealed to us, and then one of those kids went and got married and got sealed to anywhere else, someone else, where does it stop? And one more other quick comment, too, and I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, with all this history so available, then why, why are people so blind to it? Why can't they read, you know, the Doctrine and Covenants? Paul, we're going to go with your last question first. Sandra, you would be the one to answer <laughs> that. 
Okay, thank uh, you. Thank you, Paul. God bless. I'm amazed when I talk with Mormons today that they are not aware that Section 132 is still on the Doctrine and Covenants. I will bring up different problem areas in their scriptures, and I've had men that have been active in the church all their life say, I don't remember ever reading that. Um, now, that's not true of all of them. I talked to some that obviously are very informed. But in a church that spoon-feeds you everything and uses a manual that prescribes what you're to study, it keeps you from looking at anything outside of the prescribed list of material. Also, the church trains you all your life that anything outside of the approved reading list is evil. And it's all lies. And you can't trust it. So you're told all the time, just stay within the church printed material. When I bring up a point to a Mormon, the first thing they'll say to me is, where did you get that? What book's that in? And uh, I said, well, it's out of your history of the church. You know, who published that? Uh, and it's, so they're, they're programmed with this immediate response that if it's something that's uncomfortable to them, you must have made it up. It's got to be a lie. can't be out of an official church source. Uh, so with that kind of, of training all their life, they stay within this prescribed reading program or non-reading program. And uh, they haven't heard these things. Uh, I'm amazed at people that just have no clue about what's in their current documents. I had a lady in the store the other day, and I was talking to her about She said, well, why did you leave Mormonism? And I said, well, for one thing, I couldn't reconcile the uh, Joseph Smith view of God with the, the Bible. And she says, well, what's wrong with this view of God? And so I went over some of the things about God once being a man and that sort of stuff. And she says, well, I've never heard that. Well, she may not have heard it, but that's not the same as saying the church doesn't teach it. Uh, it's amazing to me how many of them hear the PR level of doctrine that's given out and never go beyond the PR and think that's Mormonism. Uh, Entry-level Mormonism sounds a lot like Christianity. But the more you're involved in Mormonism, the more you go through the temple, the more you get the picture of God was once a man, men can become gods, and there's a whole bunch of theology that you've never heard out there before. So uh, the reason so many people still buy into it today is because they either aren't aware there's anything else to read or they're afraid to read anything else. Well, there you go. That would be from an expert who would know about that. And then as far as ceilings go, let's go to someone who has experienced probably a lot of ceilings in her uh, experience of life with Mormonism and seen more. What do you think about that comment and the question about ceilings? Well, actually, there hasn't been a lot of ceilings in my life. The, uh, of course, the polygamy groups don't have their temple, so they, they have their own separate ceremonies, and they will seal the polygamous unions, but they didn't seal the children to any, at least not in my experience, they haven't. Mm. And um, the, as far as their doctrine goes, um, you are sealed for time and eternity, just like the Mormon church. Uh, you get your children and your wives when you uh, get into heaven, and um, the ceilings are forever, forever, uh, but they don't do them. We, we don't have baptism, we don't have the temple ceremonies or anything like that. Oh, I never knew that. No. You know, now, some do, but we didn't. Yeah, some oh, some of them do. do that, oh. but not all of them. Right. Oh, very good. Uh, also, just to uh, uh, throw in on that, what was I going to say about the ceilings? Uh, oh, I... I 
you know, and this may or may not be true, it's my opinion on Joseph Smith, but I really think he was into family. His family, he always wanted them to be together, and he, they were kind of broken up because of things throughout his life, early life. And I think family was so important, and that's what you seal in heaven can be sealed. And I think he just took that, like everything, and made it huge. And uh, not biblical, and, and there's my comment on it. We're going to David, first-time caller from Alberta, Canada. David, our first Canadian caller. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? We're doing well. Are you watching the show up there? I certainly am. Awesome. I'm uh, watching it on the Internet. Well, welcome. Good. I have a question uh, for your panel of guests. Okay. Uh, have any of today's LDS leaders acknowledged the lies told by Joseph Smith and other early church leaders regarding their practice of polygamy? Uh, what do you mean? Well, they haven't acknowledged that they lied about it, if that's your question. Have any of the apostles or the general authorities in today's church said, yes, Joseph Smith and the other early church leaders lied about their practice of polygamy? I'm not aware that any of them have acknowledged that he lied about it. Some of their historians have, and the historians will sort of bypass the problem by saying that, uh, well, it was necessitated at the time because of the narrow-mindedness and, and whatnot, and they'll kind of do a spin on why it was okay for Joseph to lie at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned um, Doctrine and Covenants section 132 quite a bit. How about new church manuals? Any revisions that uh, they've made in there to cover up polygamy? <laughs> yes. If you look at their uh, little, they have these, uh, every year they put out these little manuals, Teachings of the Presidents. And so then one year there's this one, Teachings of the Presidents for Brigham Young. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. How, I don't know if he's the one that's talked the most about polygamy of anybody, but but he certainly had plenty of polygamy in his sermons. So they do a whole manual on the teachings of Brigham Young. Not only do they edit out everything he said about plural wives that would have been in his sermons, they edit out his plural wives. <laughs> and uh, so the manual starts talking about his wife, Marianne Angel, that I'm descended from. But then nothing is said of any other wives. And further on in the manual, it talks about uh, a time of some problem came up with one of his children, one of his children. They don't tell you it's one of 56 children. And uh, his wife said, and they quote this thing, okay, they don't tell you which wife that is. His wife said, well, it wasn't Mary Ann Angel. It was one of the other wives, you know. So that whole manual is very carefully constructed to keep out his polygamy from the manual. Yeah, just a, a closing comment, if I may. Um, <clears throat> You know, Joseph and the other leaders obviously lied about polygamy. Uh, why should we trust them about the first vision, about seeing uh, Moroni, or was it Nephi, or the, the gold plates? Um, I just don't get how anyone can accept the lies told by the leaders of the church when they so blatantly contradict their own article of faith about being honest and true. That is a great Thanks point. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. That's a great point. I also want to make uh, something clear. Abraham, when he lied in the Old Testament about his wife being his sister, that was from him. That was not from God. They say God told him that he, that he did not tell Abraham to lie. The father of lies is the, is the devil, not God, and he would not tell you to lie. So when they use that Abraham lied and he did it, you know, a lying for the Lord bit, it's just not true. Yeah, just, can I comment on yes. That? Uh, on the, the Abraham issue in line for the Lord, Joseph Smith supposedly translated this new book of scripture called the Book of Abraham. 
And in it, he tells the story of Abraham lying about his wife. And he changes the biblical account. And in his account, in the book of Abraham, he has God telling him to lie. And when Joseph Smith brought out the book of Abraham, this was at the time when he was secretly practicing polygamy. And I believe he did that book of Abraham specifically as a justification that he could show to his apostles that the reason he was lying about polygamy was the same reason that Abraham had to lie about his wife in order to stay safe, because otherwise he'd be arrested for breaking the laws of Illinois. And so uh, the whole book of Abraham, I think, comes about as a justification for lying for the Lord. Fantastic. Anything to add, Doris? Uh, only that there are many uh, people who don't realize that Section 132 being the doctrine of polygamy is mentioned several times in the Gospel Principles Handbook, um, which really quite surprised me because so many of them deny that polygamy is still in their doctrine, and yet several times in their handbook they refer to Section 132 for their doctrine of um, becoming godhood or eternal marriage or eternal families. So it's there for them to read if they would just read the whole section. So we're dealing with a very slippery animal on a very slippery slope and on one hand they're, they're publishing things, on the other hand they deny things, we have history, we have all kinds and so what many members do is say I'm not gonna listen or study, I, I can't follow it all, I'm just gonna walk away and believe. Let me tell you it's very simple to find the facts they're on websites like www.utlm.org. I can't push it enough because it will help you see the truth. All right, we're going to Christine in Holiday. Christine, first-time caller. Yes. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm fine, thank you so much. Well, good. You're on the air. Oh, oh, good. Okay, I'm going to set some fire to your program along with our wonderful Sandra and Doris, and oh. I can't thank them enough for their bravery yeah. and their honesty. Um, but I have thoughts. I moved to Utah in about 73, married a Mormon, and then divorced a Mormon and became a Christian and understand what it means to, to be an apostate. My question is this. I, I talk with friends and joke, and I don't mean to offend any Russians, but I remember growing up and being afraid of of the Russians taking over the world, only to think that maybe it's the Mormons and wondering if um, a candidate wouldn't set the stage for the Antichrist and your thoughts on that. Doris, <laughs> I'm I know it's a baptism of fire for you. Huh. It's a little deep. It, it's deep. I'll, I'll comment quickly. I've heard, uh, you know, there's always been speculation among the Christian church of who the Antichrist is going to be. And my quick answer is there are people who search for the Antichrist and there are people who search for Jesus Christ. I'm searching for Jesus Christ and uh, wherever the Antichrist pops up, have at it, buddy. I, you know, I'm going to just keep going until it all ends. <laughs> Doris and Sandra. Well, I don't have much to say about it either. I, I tend not to believe that this would be the case. Um, I believe that the Antichrist is going to come from uh, a different source. And like um, Sean said, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for the eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Sandra. Well, I don't think that the Mormon Church is going to turn out to be the Antichrist, but I think what it does show you is that a religion can look good and have the wrong message. 
And this is the type of thing that we would be expecting in the Antichrist. It's something that looks good to the world, but at the core has a, a real fallacy. So I don't think the Mormon Church is going to be it, but I think they can serve as a sort of uh, example of how that type of thing could happen. Excellent point. Excellent point. Okay. I appreciate you so much. Thank, Thank you for calling. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Paul in Midvale. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How you doing there? I'm doing well. You're on with Sandra and Doris. Sandra and Doris. Good evening. Hey, I've got a question. Um, you know, it's in the general arena anyhow, but the one thing that's always kind of perplexed me is the LDS are always pushing, you know, families are forever, families are forever, and one thing that really, I don't know, frustrates me is that Heavenly Father apparently has had to give up his family. Um, you know, uh, there is no genealogy. Uh, he must have parents. He must have, you know, grandparents. Why and at what point does, uh, you know, a, a God no longer need his God, if you will? Uh, it, it just totally confuses me. Maybe you can help straighten it out. Thanks. Okay, Paul, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, Doris or Sandra, any idea on that one? Well, the Mormons believe that every god is subservient to the god above him. And so there's a whole hierarchy of deities in the Mormon pantheon of gods. And they say that each god still is answerable to the god above him. So that you never surpass that god, you never become equal to him. Uh, every god has a god above him. So, um, yeah, it gets real confusing because uh, if every god's got a mom and dad and a grandma and grandpa, uh, they're all scattered through the universe, and you wonder how they ever have family home evening. Uh, it, <laughs> you know, sounds real complicated. <laughs> it's a it's a giant uh, multi-level marketing thing, man. It just it, the pyramid is enormous, and they're all little genealogical trees. It's just it goes on incessantly. So, uh, good question. We're going to Teresa on line four. Teresa from Sugar House, you're on Heart of the Matter. take that quickly. Uh, I think that Jesus is important to the LDS insofar as he makes uh, their salvation and their godhood possible. Uh, so he is important to them. But your point is, is, is well taken. I mean, Joseph plays a major part because uh, in the end, it was him restoring the gospel that allowed for them to understand all these mysteries and to be able to practice all these rites and rituals and things in order to reach their highest elevated state as a man. So you might have a good point, and, you, and, and maybe that's true. Of course, doctrinally, as a Christian, I don't believe that for a second, and I believe they may have Joseph in the eternities with them, but I don't think it's going to be in, uh, in a place where they're uh, going to be real happy with, but that's my thought on it. I'm saying that I believe that they believe. Yeah. They believe. Yeah, I agree. I believe that you probably agree with me. Yeah. The 
best thing in the whole world when we die is to go live with Jesus. Right. And we're going to be the happiest with Jesus. I'm saying that that's the only truth. I'm not sure that I'm thinking that they, because they think they can be a god, which I can't wrap my head around, that that's the reason they don't think that it's as, he is as important, because they'll be someplace else. They'll be in their own world. I see. And uh, you, you, you may be exactly right. You may be right. Any other thoughts on that, ladies? Oh, that's good. No. Well, Jesus is just um, their older brother. There, there isn't anything real special about that. Um, and then when you get it to, to when you, he was a polygamist, and he's got his own families and his own worlds, and, and you're just going to be like that. You're just a little bit further behind him. You know what? We're having a technical problem with line four. It's proverbial with this, with this line. I'm sorry about that, but I think our audience got the question. Okay. Thanks so much for calling. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Sorry, line four is always difficult. We're going to Kurt in Salt Lake City. Kurt, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Kurt? I'm still kicking, thank you. Well, that's good. <laughs> My question is, uh, it's just a general question. I'm not well-versed at this, but is it true that only Mormons can go to the highest level of heaven? Yes. And, and if so, how could somebody represent us as president if they don't feel we're all created equally and could attain the highest level for everyone? Thoughts? Well, uh, they, the Mormons believe that everyone could achieve that highest level if they all became Mormons and went through the Mormon temple. So they think everyone has the potential to be there, but uh, not everyone wants to join the program. So um, obviously by their standards, a lot of people aren't going to be in the highest level of heaven. Uh, and it is one of the exclusionary claims of Mormonism that you have to be a Mormon, you have to be active in the LDS church, you have to go to the temple regularly, you have to pay your full tithing in order to have eternal life and live in the highest level of heaven. So it is a very exclusionary doctrine, but they do believe that everyone has a shot at it. And that, the reason I ask is, you know, when we have someone running for president that is LDS, would, you would think they would represent the everyone equally and if they believe that only their religion could go to the highest level of heaven, uh, it's kind of exclusionary. Well, but don't you think that's kind of that way with everyone, with their religion? I mean, each person's religion feels they're exclusionary. Um, I mean, if you have a Baptist in office, he's going to feel exclusionary uh, as far as Christianity goes. Uh, so uh, that part wouldn't worry me as much as what their general political understanding and agenda is. It concerns me more that there is such a tie into authority in Mormonism that is not true in other denominations. Uh, even a Catholic is not answerable to the Pope in the sense that Romney would be answerable to the president of the church. There is a priesthood authority with the lay priesthood that ties him in in a much closer fashion. It would be much more like a cardinal running for president of the United States as far as the accountability to the head of the church. Uh, so that to me is a bigger concern and the allegiance that he takes in the temple ceremony to the Mormon church. Any other? No, I, my main concern was that 
I wasn't real clear, and I needed your help to explain to me whether or not. Okay. Thank you so much, Kurt. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to Ben in Salt Lake City on line four. Ben, hope this works. Ben. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Speak very loudly and make sure your TV's off. Okay, no problem. Hey, uh, Sean, I've, I've uh, got your book from my friend Catherine, and uh, I'm sure uh, Lucy and, and I think his name's uh, Corey are listening. Uh-huh. But I've been very interested to hear what these ladies have had to say. Uh, oh, this is Ben. Yes. Ben, Ben, can I introduce the audience who you are? Sure. Ben is a polygamist. Ben uh, grew up in uh, Colorado City. And uh, I actually have had conversation with Ben. You, it's great. I'd love to get you on the show sometime, Ben. But as of now, you're on the air on a very bad line. So give us something that you want to ask these ladies. Oh, uh, well, I just want to uh, ask them if they've ever met uh, some women who have had large families and who have children like me who believe that they've been raised in the best environment imaginable mankind okay well let's ask Doris first have you met women who if I understand your question right Ben who have believe they've who have children like you who believe they've lived in the best imaginable upbringing possible I've met a lot of women who have been raised in polygamy groups. I was raised in a polygamy group. My mother was a second wife. Uh, most of the families in the group were huger families than ours were. Um, yes, they believe that it is a great and imaginable uh, lifestyle, but uh, is it really natural for a child to have 14 mothers and one dad and 75 oh, brothers and sisters? And in fact, <laughs> Mothers have a great way, mother, Ben, mothers have a great way of making their children think they're happy. Also the opposite. Let me, they do, and they were very happy with my dad, and they were happy with their sister wives. And uh, to be honest with you, I can't see how someone in monogamous could even experience the experience that I had when I grew up. Well, I would say you're an exception. And that's a very mature uh, response too, Ben. And, and I think we've talked about the exceptions to the rule. There's always going to be an exception. It's quite possible. Who's that lady who lived with the apes? Jane Goodall. Goodall. It's quite possible that she was as happy as all your moms too. I mean, there are always exceptions, Ben, to living conditions. There's always exceptions. And there are people who do all kinds of crazy things where it works for them. But that doesn't make it of God. Do you understand that, Ben? Right, but uh, Sean, I, what is your agenda? These ladies are—they were—they were actually happy that Joseph Smith was crucified, just like Jesus Christ, for standing up for what he believed God asked him to do. Okay, Joseph Smith wasn't crucified, Ben. He went out with a gun in his hand. He killed two people, and he was trying to escape when they shot him. Big difference than when Jesus was put on the cross. Well, but, okay, I just want to leave with one more comment. All right. I'll let you go. Uh, Jesus said this, okay? They teach for doctrine, 
the commandment of men. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Okay? Okay. Is That's that it. All right, Ben, thank you for the call. All right. Bye-bye. I'd like to say that the last scripture Ben gave perfectly describes those who practice polygamy. Polygamy is a doctrine of man. It is not a doctrine of God. God never commanded polygamy. He's, there's no scripture in the Bible that you'll find that God commanded polygamy or asked anybody to live it. Amen. Amen, sister. And I hope all you Latter-day Saints who think that God did command it in the Bible heard that. Call up and challenge us. Give us the scriptures so we can talk about it. We have, it says, your wife, and it says Hilkamora, line two. I don't know what this is about, but uh, maybe my past is catching up with me somehow. <laughs> uh, you're on the air. Hey. It is my wife. This is a first. You could not have a show on polygamy without your wife calling. <laughs> I'd like this... to clarify that I am wife number one. <laughs> I could work well with Sandra and Doris, but I'm still in life number one. <laughs> you're, you're experiencing how I keep my sanity. <laughs> I just want to say phenomenal job. These ladies and you, it really, really a phenomenal job. Well, thank you so much, babe. I miss you. We'll see you when we come home. I'll be there in the morning. I, we'll guys. see you. I mean, I'll see you, not we'll see you. <laughs> well, bring them along. What the heck? We can all do Disneyland. She's a liberal. I'll see you. Thank you. Love bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. We're going to Matthew. That was a first for heart, the heart of the matter. Mary has never called before, so she was so impressed with this. Uh, it's a great, well, great show. Well, she had show. to clarify that she certainly... we were not really working a deal here. <laughs> she certainly did. All right, we're going to Matthew from Salt Lake City. Matthew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? I'm enjoying the show a lot today, uh, tonight. But uh, hey, listen, a uh, real quick comment and then uh, a little more of a, a general question. First, uh, you know, uh, I think we talked about this before. My uh, my background uh, was polygamous as well, and as a kid, I was always kind of taught it was, oh, you know, these guys were just, you know, taking these women in. You know, it wasn't a sexual thing; it was just kind of a charity thing. You know, these were, you know, little old, you know, widows and and, and women that it was a, an act of charity. It, it had nothing to do with sex and. Come on, let's be honest. That's just not how men operate. I mean, right? It's just not. I mean, it's not. Come on. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not a perfect person. I, I see. You know, it'd be in an ideal world with no, you know, feelings and emotions attached. Yeah, it'd be nice to, you know, have multiple women that God sanctioned you to have. Right. Relations with. Come on, it's just not real. Right. And uh, carnal man. Anyways, uh, they're not fooling anyone. It, and no one that that really knows how, you know, it. it base instincts always way out. But anyways, uh, point two is, I, you know, I remember when I first started watching your show about a year ago. Half the calls you got were irate Mormons calling in to express their outrage and you know, say how offended they were and how, how, how wrong you were, but I haven't seen much of that lately, and I'm wondering if maybe uh, what I see a lot of now is preaching to the choir, and I'm, I'm hoping maybe there's a way where you and, you know, your, your ministry can, can reach out and, and uh, maybe get a little broader base as opposed to just talking to me and other 
disaffected, you know, ex-Mormons. Right. Matt, I, I, Matthew, let me comment on that, and then Sandra has a comment on your first point. Okay. Uh, as far as our viewership, we know that we still have a lot of LDS who watch, and that's one of the beautiful things about being on television, is that they can watch in the quiet of their homes and not respond. I've also received uh, two emails where people have been told by their stake presidents through their bishops not to watch the show in this I area. I believe that, absolutely. The Mormons are all about quashing dissent. They don't want to foster an honest debate. They want to, to, to cut people off at the, at the pass and not... Absolutely. You're, I, I, that doesn't surprise me in the least. Well, the other thing, Matthew, is, is, is I may have uh, helped that because I don't want debate. I, I really am not here to go through an apologetic debate with Mormons who have answers for these things simply because they are categorically wrong relative to the Bible. I don't care what their doctrines say. I present the truth as I find it. And so... Having them call or not, the point is we're putting the message out there, and they are listening uh, based off our emails. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Sean, the first time we talked, I accused you of being a little too combative, and, and uh, we talked about that, and I, I decided that maybe, you know, by sugarcoating things, you're not doing anyone any favors, and I, I, I've grown to, to appreciate your style. And uh, Thanks. Sandra has a comment for you, Matthew. Hey, listen, it's good talking to you again. You have a great night, and I'll keep watching. Okay. Thank you. Sandra, comment. Well, he brought up the thing about uh, the sexual aspect of polygamy. And I think this is one of the things that many Mormons assume, at least a lot of them say to me, Jose they don't believe Joseph had sexual relations with his wives. I mean, they know that Brigham Young did. Uh, they know that when they got to Utah, there was sexual activity, but a lot of them will say, oh, I don't think Joseph Smith had sex with his wives, but I want you to know there is documentation from either statements by his wives or by his friends that uh, are on record in Mormon publications where they talk about uh, Joseph spent the night with his uh, plural wife in the room next to me, and I know they were man and wife in very deed. Or, you know, there are these kinds of statements, uh, statements where one lady on her deathbed tells her daughter, you're really the child of Joseph Smith. So in church literature, there are statements that indicate that his union with these different women did have a sexual connotation to them, and that's all laid out in uh, uh, books like Mormon Enigma, uh, the story of Emma Smith, also in, uh, 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 in Sacred Loneliness, the life stories of Joseph's plural wives, and in the book Mormon Polygamy, a History by Van Wagner. All of those books have a little section touching on the fact that Joseph's marriages with these women were consummated. And Doris has comment. Uh, yes, I have a couple of things to say about that. Um, first of all, it is a, a sexual thing. If you read the, the 132 section of the Doctrine and Covenants, you're going to see that uh, nothing is said in that revelation about a social aspect or about charity. It's all about virgins. Uh, it's all about not sinning and committing adultery. So the, the whole section is talking about sex. It's not talking about benevolence. Um, also, if it isn't a sexual thing, why do polygamy groups have such a high, high ratio of child sexual abuse if it isn't a sexual focus? Well, good, great points from both of you. Thank you. You know, it seems like, and maybe you can comment on this before we go to Wanda and Oram, but it seems like 
uh, sex is just a major part of Mormonism. I mean, this, this procreating for eternity, spirit children, pre-existence, multiple wives. This, this sex thing is just pervasive. Now, is it me because I'm a male and I think of it this way? Or what do you ladies think having seen so much in your lives? Well, I think for one thing, a lot of the Mormon women, I don't believe, have thought through the whole eternal family thing. Um, a lot of them I talk to, they're all excited about it. I get to have my three kids that I have here on earth with me for all eternity. But that's not what eternal families are about. The whole concept is your husband and his wives, whatever number he ends up with, are going to have children forever to populate their worlds. And you look in the Mormon scriptures and uh, God says, worlds without number have I created. If he's had world without numbers, that means heavenly mother has had children without number to, to have born to her all the spirits for her world. And this is the goal of the Mormon plan of eternal progression. You're progressing to Godhood and your children are progressing to Godhood. Every world you make has to be populated by your spirit children. So we don't know how many spirit children were designated for this world, but it was billions. So, and if God's done worlds without number, I mean, just, uh, you know, it's, I don't, I don't want to sign up for motherhood, you know. <laughs> no one's ever told me this before. I'm thinking of maybe go going back. No, I'm just kidding. What a plan. Doris. I just asked the, the women, do you really want to be pregnant for eternity? I mean, have you been oh. pregnant here? Do you really want to have that many pregnancies? Never ending. I want to say I love my three children. But that's <laughs> <laughs> But I don't want 30 billion. <laughs> 30 billion. <laughs> All right, we're going to Wanda on line one from Orem. Wanda, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, John. This is Wanda. Last time I talked to you, I was in Provo. Hello, Wanda. You sent me to... Um, Scott McKinney's church, and I went to UCU at Heart of the Church. Awesome. I want to thank you for sending me there. And Sandra, I met you at the Lighthouse once, and you <laughs> was very nice. Thank you. I was glad to see you on tonight. Now, the other lady I haven't met yet, but I'm really impressed with both of you women for being on and speaking up. Um, and John, I just want to thank you again because I'm loving the Christ Evangelical Church. It's been really good to go. I think I've got to think back. I lost being with the LDS. So awesome. I want to thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Tell you guys, I'll have a great night. Thanks so much, Wanda. Bye-bye. Bye. Scott McKinney does a great job down in the uh, Utah Valley. If you're looking for a good church, uh, Christ Evangelical is a great one. There's a lot of good churches. They're on our uh, website, uh, that, and I'm sure there's more that we're not getting yet. So please uh, email us. Tell us where they are. We'll be happy to uh, recommend them as we're able to visit them. All right, we're going to Alan in South Jordan. Alan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, yes. I have two questions, quickly. Okay. Uh, it's for any three of you. Uh, what about the... Um, this, the passage in the Bible uh, that uh, indicates that God had a hand in in uh, David's wives. I have a comment on that, but if someone wants to go before me. Well, um, when David sinned with Bathsheba, um, God told David that he had given him um, all of Saul's his master's kingdom, he said, uh, which included his wives. That is not saying that God gave David the okay to live polygamy. 
God did not give David the okay to live polygamy. He, what happened was Saul was the king before David was, uh -huh. and uh, Saul lost the kingdom, and David took the kingdom because God made that choice. And the outgoing king's uh, uh, kingdom, all, everything went to the incoming king. And so therefore, uh, David had a legal right to Saul's harem. Oh, and uh, because God gave the kingdom to David, God is saying, you had a legal right to the harem. Why did you take another man's wife and then kill him? Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I see your point. It does say that uh, God says, I gave thee thy master's uh, wives. Right. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's just something to think about. But That's he didn't command it. Now, the other quick, quick uh, question is uh, about lying. Uh, I noticed that throughout the Bible, uh, quite a few, I'm not justifying lying, of course, but uh, there's a lot of prophets that did some lying, you know, uh, Jacob deceiving um, his father Isaac, um, uh, you, you know the story about uh, uh, getting the birthright from Esau, and yet Jacob turned out to be a pretty good guy. Uh, how do you interpret Paul in Romans 3, 7, where he says, uh, why do you judge me as a sinner if I lie uh, for God, for God's glory? You got to give us Romans 3, 7? Yeah. Romans 3, 7 uh, says, For if the truth of God hath more astounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet I am also judged as a sinner? And then, uh, of course, we got to look is... God unrighteous who taketh vengeance, I speak as a man, is a parenthetical reference he says before. I think that what he's saying is, if you are calling me a liar, I don't know the context of this, but you're calling me a liar, and if God is coming around, people are getting to know God because of this, what are you blaming me for? Is that what you think it's saying? Well, I'm, I'm, I think what it's saying is he's, he's told some white lies. and I don't think so. Well, uh, all right, let's... Uh... But I don't think it's beyond him. He's a man. Uh-huh. And that's the point with Jacob. Jacob was an idiot. Yeah. Jacob lied. Jacob was a deceiver. Uh -huh. But it didn't... That, that's the beauty of that story is that even an idiot can be chosen of God and used by God. Yeah. Yeah. And... And, uh, and they're all looking at me and laughing. <laughs> all right. Uh, one, one last question is, is what about the, the story in First uh, Kings uh, where, where it talks about God sending an, a lying spirit? To, um, to deceive or, or to test a prophet. Everything goes before the, the uh, bar of God. All things. Satan answers to God. So, uh, it, it sounds like in that passage that he was sent by God. Uh, 1 Kings uh, twenty two eighteen. I don't want to get into a big thing. I, all I'm saying is uh, it does look like there's some uh, pretty good guys in the Bible that... Uh, uh, told lies. Uh, I'm not excusing it, of course, but... Uh, but they weren't good guys. I mean, no one is good. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. That turned out to be pretty good guys uh, in terms of, of uh, doing great deeds and, and uh, uh, doing God's work. So, um, bottom line, in the end, as we go, move, we'll move forward, but tell me, Alan, what is your point? That are you saying it's, it's understandable that the LDS will lie for the Lord and, and deceive in order to protect the church? I'm saying those, those sins that they commit when they lie uh, are probably forgivable, and, uh, and they're in good company 
with, uh, with the liars in the Bible. Uh, a lot of passages where, where uh, they, they, quite a few of the guys that we normally think of as great men uh, did some lying. And, uh, it doesn't make it right, though, does oh, no, it? No, it doesn't make it right. right. I agree. Okay, I understand your point. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much, Alan. All right. Okay, and I want to check out some of those verses. I'll go back and watch the show because, uh, you know, when you pull them out like that, you know, we got to look at them in context, challenge everybody to look them up, and if Alan's right, you know, call us and let's talk about it. Let's go to Russ in Spanish Fork. Russ, you're on with Doris and Sandra and Sean. Hey, how are y'all doing? Well, how are you? Great. Hey, I just had a really quick comment. I wanted to expand on something that Doris had just briefly mentioned about DNC 132 and the whole virgin topic. Uh-huh. I believe it says in verse 61, I, I don't have it sitting in front of me right now, that, that it, as long as the extra wives are virgins, then it's just fine. I mean, I, I wish I could quote that word for word, but that's pretty much what it says. Um, I guess the question I want to bring with that is, how does that explain the, the ten or so wives that Joseph had when he was, that, that were previously married to other men? Yeah, that's a good well, question. Right, it is a problem. <laughs> The, the section 132 has no justification for a third of his plural wives because they were not virgins. Um, so I don't know what you do with that. Uh, it just shows the, the man-made nature of polygamy in Mormonism, the man-made structure of section 132, that it doesn't cover all of the problems of Joseph Smith's polygamy, uh, because it does only allow for virgins. Uh, there is nothing in there that would allow for married women. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, was, I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that, because when I first read DNC 132 really for the first time, that's what really helped me start to open my eyes as to a lot of the beliefs that I had were probably not exactly what I thinking they were. So Praise God. Um, Are you going to church in a different place now? Yeah, we, we're going to Christ Evangelical now. Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. Right there. Thanks, hey, thanks Ru- again for everything you guys all do. Okay. Thank you, Russ. Bye-bye. We're going to Stacy in Ogden. Stacy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean and Hi. ladies. I just wanted to call and ask a question regarding um, John chapter 10, verse 33 and 34 regarding when he says, Ye are gods. Oh. I am, just a little background, I am a born-again Christian, used to be an LDS member. My mother and father are going on an LDS mission as a senior couple here in two weeks, and they brought forth this verse, and I wanted to get your comments on that, first of all. And then I know one real quick um, question and comment regarding temple work, and when people die, they don't get sealed to their kids. So my mom and my dad are going, my father's proxy, my mother as the child, and a brother for the deceased, my grandparents, and they are being sealed to the parents where my grandfather was actually, I would consider, against the church. So they have done his temple work and baptism. Now they're doing the temple work for um, the sealings with their children. And I was wondering, what's, is there any doctrine or statements or anything Sandra can think of in regards to will my grandfather, who was actually against it, accept it in the afterlife? Those are my two questions. Thank you. Okay, I'll let Sandra handle the last one, and I'll handle the first one, or? Um, I, don't, I don't know if I understood. What was she I asking didn't... about her grandpa? 
of, of who he would be sealed to? He wasn't for polygamy. Okay, well, it doesn't matter whether you're for it or against it. They just seal everybody, and then they figure that uh, God works it all out uh, at the end. It gets into some pretty funny uh, genealogical stuff. Uh, if you're doing your family genealogy and you're turning names into the temple and you find, say, for instance, your great-grandma had three husbands during her lifetime. Uh, okay, who do you seal her to? And the church will tell you, you seal her to all three men. Well, now she can't really have all three men. She could only have one. And uh, so then you ask, well, how'd my sealing her to all three men if she can only have one husband? Oh, well, her and God are going to figure it out later, which is the valid sealing. And uh, so I don't know how the other two guys feel about this, but, uh, you know, so it just gets unworkable. Uh, now, if it's the other way around and you find great-great-grandpa had three wives, that's okay because you can seal him to all three of those and he'll be a polygamist in heaven. And there have been cases where they've just picked some name to seal a guy to when they do their genealogy, which I think, you know, wow, that'd be a big surprise, you know. Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> oh, she doesn't have a husband, we'll just seal her to this guy, you know. Um, uh, so it doesn't matter whether you want it done or not. Once you're dead, they feel they can do what they want with your records and they will go in and seal whomever they want to whomever. Uh, and there's not much you can do about it. Okay, and uh, in relation to that quote or that uh, verse, what it is is every time Jesus gets around the Jews and their leadership, they're asking him, you know, who are you? Tell us whatever. And in verse 24, they say, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Okay, the Jews ask him that. And so he goes on and he tells them in verse 30, I and my father are one. All right. And then it says in verse 31, and the Jews picked up stones to kill him. All right. So this was the context. Jesus uses their own scripture, which he's very good at since he wrote it. And he helps them understand the ridiculousness of what they're doing. And what he does, it's almost tongue in cheek. He quotes Psalms 82, 6. And in Psalms 82, 6, it says, ye are magistrates and judges. All right. The word that is used for a human magistrate and a human judge is Elohim, all right? And so uh, if there was somebody who was over an area and he was a magistrate, the word was Elohim and they called him a God, lowercase g. So Jesus says to him when they're going to kill him, Is it not written in your law, I said ye are gods? If you look at that g on there, you'll see it's a lowercase g. And it's referring to men holding place of judgment and, and magistrate. And he's saying, it says in your law that you can call men gods. Why are you going to stone me for saying I'm the son of God? That's the whole context. That's what it means. And it's taken so out of context to try to mean that men are going to become gods. That's my answer to it. If anyone wants to add on, join in the fray. Chris, Chris is uh, going. I forgot we didn't have a caller. We're going to Chris on line one. Chris. From a Spanish Fork, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. I have a comment and then a question. Okay. The, I believe the man's name was Alan that was uh, asking about the, the good guys from the Old Testament. And um, my comment is, if you look at the lineage of the line of Jesus, then you're going to find a lot of people in it who were sinners. And... I believe that this is God saying that he can use even sinners to further his, his purpose and his 
his will. And it's very encouraging to me as a Christian that even though I am a sinner and I have sinned, uh, God can still use me. Mm-hmm. So perhaps he could look at it like, yeah, these are, they did, David did do some horrific things, but God was still able to use him. My question is, um, I have family who are LDS. I have children who are LDS and siblings. And maybe just some, uh, some uh, advice or opportunity or some way that I could approach them with, with the truth. You're, 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 you've been in this game a lot longer than me and probably longer than Doris. Well, there's a lot of different ways of, of trying to get into a conversation and try to think, bring things around to Christ. Um, I think one thing that uh, you could use as a springboard of, of discussion is if you got the Mormon manual gospel principles, then you could ask questions from there of your family uh, for instance, there's a chapter in that book on the atonement. And in the chapter on atonement, uh, Apostle Packer, who's currently an apostle in the church today, gives a parable about the atonement. And he tells the story of a man that gets deeply in debt, and the creditor's going to call in the loan, and the guy's going to go to prison. So the fellow remembers he has a friend, and he goes and appeals to the friend to help him with the creditor. And so the friend, who's obviously the Jesus figure in the story, goes to the creditor and works out a deal, but then he turns to the creditor, uh, to the guy that owes the money, and he says, if I pay your debt, will you accept me as your creditor? Will you, then you will pay the payments to me. It will not be easy, but I'll set the way. And so the story, this parable of, of what the atonement means to them shows that they don't understand the grace of Christ because they have Jesus refinancing their debt and the man's going to make payments to Jesus now. It doesn't say Jesus paid it all and handed the guy a piece of paper saying paid in full. And so I've used that atonement story with the Mormon to try to point out when Christians are talking about salvation through Christ, we're talking about the full payment. We're not refinancing. And the beautiful thing of Christianity is it is paid. Uh, that's just one way. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the lady I talked with when I said I, I left Mormonism, but it's because I couldn't reconcile Joseph Smith's doctrine of God. And then she was surprised because uh, she'd never heard what he taught about God. And that opened a conversation and I could show her in the Mormon literature what Joseph had said as compared to the Bible. So you're looking for ways to, to interject a thought. Rome wasn't built in a day. You don't get everything done in one conversation. And especially with family, we have to be so careful to not shut doors to where they'll never talk to us again. So when we have a chance to say something, we put in our word for the Lord or what Christ has done for us or meant for us or a verse that's meant something for us or ask them a question about their faith. Uh, And in time, you hope and pray that God will open a bigger door. I waited years to see my mother come to faith in Christ. But she did come. I waited years to see my sister come to faith in Christ, but she did. And we had so many in our family that over many years finally came to know the Lord. So I just would encourage everyone, don't give up on your family simply because right now they won't listen to you or right now they won't talk to you. 
uh, keep planting whatever little seeds you can along the way and praying for them. And I believe in time, God will open bigger doors for you. Let me add something to that if I could. Uh, sorry, Doris, if you were going to say something, but I have a good friend, Roger, and Roger says, uh, this is what I say to my uh, LDS friends. I only have three problems with Mormonism. Uh, their doctrine of God, their doctrine of man, and their doctrine of salvation. So which one of those three do you want to talk about? And then when they, they might hone in on one. Well, let's talk about the doctrine of salvation. And then, so you've broken down, you've cut out God, you cut out man, and you just talk about salvation, and then you can explain that. So, because if you don't, you'll get caught in this, everything thrown in to try to, what about this? You've heard callers do that on the show. Try to narrow it down and just stick on their topics and be informed and uh, go from there. Anything, Doris? I'm, I'm, you keep getting this short end of the <laughs> stick here. Well, um, the only thing I have to add to that is that each person has a special need. And uh, we don't know as human beings what their spiritual need is, but God does. So if we just keep them in prayer and be sure and use the Word of God, which God says will not come boy, back void, but will accomplish what He sent it out to do. And just do as Sean and Sandra said, and just op uh, go through every open door. Sooner or later, you're going to meet a spiritual need by what you said, and you, won't, might, not, you might not even know it, but God's going to make it happen. Amen. Amen. We're going to Zoe. Uh, thank you so much for your call. Very much. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Zoe, first-time caller on line two. Zoe, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, I just have one quick comment and question. My comment is I love your guys' show. I've been watching it. This is the first time watching it. I really like it. My question is, do you guys have any idea on who might have thought up Jesus garments? Jesus garments. Oh, you're talking about the temple garments? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joseph Smith came up with the Mormon underwear from masonry. He was a mason in Nauvoo in the 1840s. And in the Masonic ritual, you, uh, your initiation rites are done in a white outfit. And when he made up his temple ceremony, he took elements of the Masonic Lodge, of their ceremony and their clothing, and incorporated it into his ceremony. And so the white clothing of the initiate in masonry becomes the white undergarments for the Mormon in his ceremony. Uh, they both dress in white, they both have aprons, but the uh, Mormon apron is green, whereas the Masonic apron is usually uh, white, at least on the first levels, and then higher up they have different fancy aprons. Um, but it all is an evolution from Masonry into Mormonism. Does that help, Zoe? Yes, that does. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. Keep watching. I will. Okay, God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Dion in Salt Lake City. Dion, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to make a statement, not a real question. Uh, when I left the LDS Church, um, I called my brother, and I told him, I said, if I can tell you one thing about the LDS Church, will you look into it? And he says, okay. And I said, well, they teach that you could become a god. And he laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard of. And I said, the next time your home teachers come around, you ask them. So I called him a few days later, and he said, yeah, they came by, and they told me I can become like God. And I said, oh, no, 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 this, you know, who are your home teachers? I want to call them. So I called his home teacher, and I said, why wouldn't you tell Lloyd that he could become a God? And he said, we did. We told him he can become like God. And I said, no, 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 you and I know the difference. Why wouldn't you tell him? And he says, 
what do you want to know this for? I said, I just want to know why you wouldn't tell him. And he said, well, okay, I'll tell you. Until he can accept Joseph Smith as a prophet, he's not ready for that. Ah. So they do actually out and out lie to you to get you hooked into the church. Another time, I'm talking to my aunt, two aunts and my uncle and his wife, and my aunt had just gone to the temple to be sealed to one of her husbands, and she didn't want me to know. They just kind of let it slip out of the bag. And so I started kind of teasing her, and I said, well, which husband are you going to be sealed to? And she said uh, to her brother, she said, you know, I, I don't know. Which, which one am I going to be sealed to? And he said, uh, oh, it doesn't matter. It'll all work out in the end. And that's the answer they have for everybody. So oh, yeah. you can't blame the people in the Mormon church. They don't understand what doctrine is. Right. They just kind of pick and choose and Every person has a different doctrine or what they believe in. They don't realize that there's certain things that are basic to their belief. Dion, thank you so much for this insightful call. We really appreciate it. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to quickly go to Paul, first-time caller in Orem. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. Hey, Paul. You're on the air. Oh, I'm sorry. This is is Mark from Orem. Hey, Mark from Orem. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question. I've, uh, when I've approached, I've got a lot of friends who are LDS. Uh, I formerly was LDS, no longer. And we've talked a lot about the, the troubles in Mormonism, obviously hit them all, you know, the Adam God, the polygamy, everything there is. And a lot of them will sit and pause when they hear those things, and they're somewhat discouraged by them, but yet they'll come back with a, a testimony that I know it was true. In fact, my buddy the other day, we were talking to him, and he says he has this experience that he knows he... He was, would have been ki- He was almost killed in an accident, but the Lord spared his life so he could serve a mission. And, and he's going to hold on to that no matter what. You can give him a truckload full of evidence. How do you get through to those type of people? And, and even though, they, like I said, they pause for the facts, they look at the historical problems, but yet they won't grasp onto them. They ignore them and they put the blinders on. Is there any way to get through to those people other than you said just the planting the seeds and continually just try to hope the, those bite? My, my thought is you're planting the seeds and you're praying for them and you're giving them, exposing them to information and, and over time they, uh, they will come around. That's, that's the only uh, solution I've experienced. Others? Right, it's the Holy Spirit that does the convincing and uh, you can't force a person to see the truth. But as we are faithful to share what we can uh, when the opportunity arises, uh, I believe God is faithful to keep those things in that person's mind and in their heart to stir them. And it, it will add up in time. Uh, all those different problems in time adds up. Uh, some, some issue comes up in their life at some point that makes them reevaluate all those things. And then they'll remember what you said. So don't lose hope. Just keep planting the seed. We keep faithfully moving on. I've seen it time after time after time in my own family with my own friends that, you know, it's like the turtle going in the race. You just keep plugging along and you finally get to the end. And I believe we will see many of our family come out and find the Lord after we have uh, seen years go by. But I believe the Lord loves them and is faithfully uh, working away at them. It's uh, because we don't see it happening as soon as we want. We lose faith. But I believe God's faithful. Thanks so much. Appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
Listen, uh, we're going to wrap it up. We have four minutes, but I'd like to hear uh, from Doris. What would you like to see happen with your ministry? What are you geared up for uh, with um, Shield and Refuge? A Shield and Refuge is a ministry that uh, was started as a result of the latest uh, video that was, or DVD that was produced by Living Hope Ministries in Brigham City called Lifting the Veil of Polygamy. And what we are trying to do is, is uh, raise awareness in the body of Christ about the problem with polygamy and really do some work in that area and evangelize the polygamists. They need to, to hear the gospel. They, they believe that uh, salvation is through living polygamy. They don't understand the gospel of grace completely. And a Shield and Refuge wants to bring that message. We also want to provide a safe house for polygamy people to free, flee to when they want to leave and provide uh, legal help and help to get their families out, their children out. Sometimes women will leave, uh, would leave if they knew they could bring their children with them. And so we're just trying to get into the trenches and work out so that people will be able to safely leave polygamy situations and then not just leave, but also find the truth and turn their lives over to Jesus. Praise God. Doris, when we first talked on the phone, told me that uh, she was looking to, to establish this refuge in this, this place, and she suggested that a Marriott Hotel would be nice <laughs> if they wanted to donate it to her ministry to house these women. So we have a round of applause for that. Marriott Hotel, come forward and give us a hotel for, for this woman's ministry. Sandra, parting uh, thoughts and words, and how can we help uh, utlm.org? Well, uh, we need a lot of prayer. Uh, we are going forward. Uh, many people know that Gerald died last year and I'm carrying on the ministry uh, as the sole head now. But I do have several people that work with me who are very faithful. Uh, we get calls every week from people coming out of Mormonism and uh, we provide information through the internet that um, is going around the world and so it's really exciting to see the outreach that can be had through the internet so i'd appreciate everyone's prayers in our behalf that we'll have the wisdom of god as we reach around the world to try to provide information on the errors of mormonism but the beauty of following christ excellent uh i want to wish cassidy my daughter a happy birthday it's tomorrow and so I haven't missed it. I'll be there. And I, want to, I can't thank my guests, uh, Sandra uh, Tanner and Doris Hansen, enough for being on this important show that we've done tonight. And uh, you'll be able to pick this up at www.bornagainmormon.com if you want a copy. Also, you can go to Utah Lighthouse Ministry, uh, utlm.org, and pick it up through them. And then maybe even Shield and Refuge would like to offer you a copy through them. I want to finish up with a, a, a quick email that we received. Some of you who have been faithful watchers of the show know a man who I believe his name was David used to call and he had an accent from India. And uh, he used to say, this is David. And I grew up in India and I'd say, I know David. And so we'd have a conversation and he was a stalwart Latter-day Saint. I, uh, his wife secretly emailed me a number of months ago and asked for our book, which I sent her. And I just received this email. It says, I don't know if you remember me, but we communicated a, a few months ago. Um, my husband filed for divorce. Honestly, I am relieved. I have been reading the Bible for a couple of months now. My husband did not like me reading the Bible. He felt I should be reading the Book of Mormon. I prayed two months ago, asking the Lord to help me either reach him or get him out of my life. Within a month, he was gone. I thought that was interesting. 
I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I thought uh, I had already done this as a Mormon, but as I read the Bible, it was plain to me that I had not. I feel so free uh, of the confines of that life, and I know Christ loves me the mo this moment the way I am. This is the purpose of these ministries, my brothers and sisters. Search the truth. It's worth it in your life. Find Jesus. Discover the truth of the religion that you will categorically claim is true. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. I'm gonna break my rusty cage.